This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Okay, from here on out, what we're focusing on is what's the demonstration that remains to be made? And what can we learn from Adventist history? Uh, In my personal experience, all the things that I think of as important have come from, A, the the groundwork of the Great Controversy, which is what we spent the last two meetings on, and B, the the lessons of Adventist history. I, I, I love our history, and so that's where we're going next. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we invite your presence to be with us now. We ask that you will direct in every word that is said. I pray that you would help me to properly represent and forgive me for where I lapse into my common nature. I pray that you will uh, bless as we, as we move forward now. And, and Lord, above all else, we want to know what we need to do to cooperate with you. And we praise you for not giving up on us thus far. In Jesus' name, amen. Why did the loud cry only begin? I'm going to guess that most of you are probably familiar with Ellen White's statement that uh, the time of test is just before us because the loud cry has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ. Anybody? How many people are familiar with that statement? Okay. Okay. What year was that? Anybody know? 1892. November... 27, November 27, 1892, Review and Herald. Uh, I don't know, I'm sure I've got that statement someplace coming up here, but anyhow. Um, that has been a huge question in Adventist history. Now, some of you, uh, you know, if you've studied into this, I hear you know, some people seem to be quick, pretty quick on that date, so that's good. Um, if you've read any of the materials from like the 1888 Message Study Committee, you know, they've got some great historical materials documenting some of this stuff. Uh, Ron Duffield recently wrote Volume 1. I'm eagerly awaiting Volume 2 of, of a book. Uh, was it The Return of the Latter Rain or Return of the Loud Cry? I always get it mixed up. But uh, great book. And what it's focusing on is this basic question of what happened? The loud cry had begun. But what happened? Okay, well... That's where we're going with this. But let's get some background setting to start off with. October 10 through November 5, 1888, was the Ministerial Institute and General Conference session held at Minneapolis. Okay? This is the famous 1888 General Conference. Jones, Wagner, Righteousness by Faith, Law and Galatians, uh, Uriah Smith, George Butler, all that mix. Okay? If you're familiar with it, great. If you're not, don't worry about it too much. Just remember that it's a very important occasion. And out of that came the movement that eventually was credited with starting the loud cry which is a good thing, (laughs) okay? One aspect of the 1888 message, or 1888 General Conference, is often overlooked, and it's very, very important for our purposes right now, and that is, after the meeting at Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man. And we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. 
That's pretty cool. I mean, how many people can say, I was converted in 1888 at Minneapolis by the preaching of Jones and Wagner? That's, that's kind of a cool thing to be able to say. Now, in order to, again, we need some setting on this. This is 1888. Dr. Kellogg had been the medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium since 1876. So he'd already been there for 12 years. But now he was a converted man. And we all knew it. We could see the power of God in his life. So what was different? Did he stop going to the bar, maybe? No. He hadn't been going to the bar. (laughs) Okay. Did he uh, pay a bunch of back tithe that he'd been withholding? No, that wasn't it either. What was the difference? What is this, uh, the converting power of God that they could see in his heart and life? What could they see? Well... Skipping over a whole bunch of other fascinating details, it turns out that the difference was that Dr. Kellogg started being nice to people. <laughs> That's what converted people do. Okay? And in particular, it led him to have an interest in orphans, widows, and the aged. Old folks. That's what converted people do. You ever go looking through the Old Testament and find out how many times the powers that be in Israel were condemned for the way they treated orphans and widows? It's a bunch. I, I haven't counted them. But there's a bunch. Okay? That's interesting. Okay? Well, in the summer of 1890, just about a year and a half after his conversion to Battle Creek, okay, Dr. Kellogg was up in uh, Michigan at Petoskey. And Ellen White was there, and he kind of buttonholed her off to one side, and he said, Sister White, what would you think about starting an orphanage? And she said, it's a wonderful idea. We're years behind in that kind of thing. Go for it. So Dr. Kellogg had his marching orders, so to speak. The next February, 1891, you're going to have to kind of follow the chronology along with me now on this, February of 1891 was the general conference session of 1891, okay? And Kellogg went to the session, and he made a motion that the church start an orphanage. He shepherded that thing through, and he got it passed, right? Okay, a committee was set up, and they started raising money to run an orphanage. Or at least they tried. A year later, February 1892, it had become apparent that the church just wasn't that excited about an orphanage. They'd been making appeals to the review all year long. The uh, second quarter of 1892, the uh, Sabbath school offerings went towards the orphanage. It's about $7,000, which admittedly was a lot more than $7,000 would be today, but it wasn't enough to do an orphanage. So a year after they'd started the project, the committee got together and they said, what are we going to do? They had a problem on their hands because they'd announced that they were going to start an orphanage in Battle Creek. Nobody was really interested, with one major exception. What category of people would be interested in the orphanage at Battle Creek? Orphans. They started showing up. People put them on trains. They came to Battle Creek. They didn't have an orphanage. But they had orphans. So Dr. Kellogg took the orphans and he got a little cabin out behind the sanitarium, and he took a couple of nurses from the sanitarium. He says, yeah, excuse me, ladies, but I, you know, I, we need you out here. Please look after these kids. 
And so the sanitarium became the de facto orphanage when they didn't have an orphanage, but they did have orphans. <clears throat> Kellogg was starting to get frantic. Um, February of 92, they took the money they had and they bought a piece of property. They didn't have any money to build anything. But they had the property and they said, you know, God, you've got to provide. I mean, we're trying to do the righteous thing. We're trying to take care of our orphans. You've got to provide. Somehow move the church to a little more generosity, please, Lord. I think the, church, I think the Lord tried, but it didn't work. So it was that um, Kellogg was getting concerned. We'll hear the story a little bit later, but a non-Adventist came along in the spring of 1892 and uh, inquired of the, you know, any projects that Kellogg might have an interest in. And uh, it ended up that she gave them $30,000 to build an orphanage. Now, if you don't understand what inflation has done to your money, build one of these for $30,000. I dare you. <laughs> this was the Haskell Home for Orphan Children. And every single piece of that was paid for by this $30,000 from Mrs. Haskell, no relation to Stephen Haskell, not a Seventh-day Adventist. It was done in, uh, in, as a memorial to her husband, who had died some year or so before, and left her a, a fair chunk of change. And she wanted to invest it in something that he would have appreciated, and so she put it into this orphanage project. It was pretty cool uh, in a lot of ways. Don't have the time to explain it all. Uh, very soon they had 100 orphans in there, and uh, they were doing well. Kellogg didn't spend all his time on the orphanage project. In early 1892, he started the Visiting Nurses Program in Chicago. Actually, you could say he started it, but it was kind of started for him, because what happened is that there was a young lady from Chicago who came up to the sanitarium with a life-threatening condition. She spent a number of, of a month or two or something like that in the sanitarium, and very much appreciated the nursing that she received there. She was taken back to Chicago for a, a surgery. I don't know why they opted to have a Chicago surgeon instead of Dr. Kellogg, who was a very skilled surgeon. But for whatever reason, she went back to Chicago to have the surgery. She insisted on a Battle Creek nurse accompanying her. The surgery was not successful. And after a post-op, as she was dying, she made her father promise that he would put, the, the, put up the money to bring a Battle Creek nurse, a sanitarium nurse, to Chicago to work for the poor. So after her death, the, uh, the father contacted Dr. Kellogg and said, I promised my daughter we would have a sanitarium nurse down here working for the poor in Chicago, and I mean to see that happen. Send me a nurse. He kept after him, kept after him, kept after him. Finally, they sent a nurse down there, and she began working with the poor in the city of Chicago. Kellogg also started what's known as the Christian Help Bands. He first floated the idea, as near as I can tell, in 1892, February of 1892. He kind of wrote up the whole plan for what came to be known as the Christian Help Bands. It wasn't until uh, early November, I mean, he ran a little trial program with one small group. Now, the Christian Help Bands, we'll talk about them a little bit more later on, but basically they were just kind of an informal thing of helping people. Go out in the neighborhood, find out if there's anybody, anybody's hungry. Find out if there's a kid walking to school that doesn't have a decent jacket. Get this kid a jacket so he doesn't freeze to death on the way to school. Find out if somebody's sick and can't afford a nurse at home. Of course, you know, health care was a little different in those days. You could do a lot more in the home. You could do a lot more with uh, community nursing than you probably can easily today because of legislation and such things. 
But that was the um, that was the the Christian help bands. Interestingly enough, the Christian help bands is the one aspect of Dr. Kellogg's humanitarian work that I have never yet found Ellen White to record a single item of criticism against. Other issues, yes, there were problems. Uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. But I've never found a, a distinct, uh, specific criticism of the Christian help bands. They started up in early November of uh, 1892. They formed uh, Christian Help Band Number One at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. It consisted of ten people, one leader, and nine helpers, and one thing or another. I don't remember all the categorizations of who was what and all. And they uh, they started doing this thing. Within a few months, they had ten. No, they had sixteen Christian Help Bands going which was about 140 people spending on average between 6 to 12 hours a week per individual out in the community around Battle Creek just helping people. Everything from maybe dressing a sore, you know, uh, some poor guy's got a sore in his leg, uh, diabetic you know, situation or something like that, taking people food, helping people find work, uh, whatever it was. Very practical. Splitting wood for little old ladies, right? Rake the leaves, things like that. That's medical missionary work in a broad sense. It's very important, and it's very effective in opening doors to work with people. So that's what was going on. Uh, November 22. Did I say 27 a while ago? Did we say 27? Anyhow, November 22 is the date. Ellen White's comment that the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ is published in the review. Okay? So that's at the end of 1892. Now, just kind of keep these things in mind. Okay, the, the orphanage starts, I mean, the money comes in for the orphanage in late spring, early summer of 92. The Christian help band, or the, the uh, visiting nurses starts in like maybe uh, February, March of 92. The help bands are started, at least kind of the idea is floated. I've found one, one reproduced, retyped, article that appears to be from Kellogg. I've never been able to find an original for it, but it's retyped, and it's dated February, I think it was, of 1892, um, where he propounds the idea for the Christian help bands. The real beginning kind of was actually was on November 4, I think it was, in 1892. All these humanitarian, medical, missionary-type things happening in 1892. November 22, Ellen White says, the loud cry has begun. February 1893, general conference session. January 27 to March 7, 1893, Ministerial Institute, General Conference Session, held at Battle Creek. Elder A.T. Jones presents a 24-part series of studies on the third angel's message, which goes from start to finish of the session. How many of you have read those? Yeah, good. A few hands, okay. The third angel's message. Great series of articles, great series of, of sermons, okay? Goes all the way through the message, the, uh, the, this time period, Okay. In that same time period, Dr. Kellogg presents a series of eight talks on medical missionary work between February 5 and 15. Okay? So, this being at the general conference session, if you wanted to go find out what Kellogg said in his talks, where would you go looking? Any budding historians here? Where do you find the record of general conference sessions? General Conference Bulletin. What a great idea. If you go to the General Conference Bulletin of 1893, you will find exactly one reference to this. It's on the very first page of the first issue of the 1893 General Conference Bulletin. It says that Dr. Kellogg will present a series on medical missionary work. They are not reported at all. Fascinating. A year and a half ago, going through 
papers that were bequeathed to me by a little old lady who had died years before and had left them with somebody else who had also died and without having had looked at them. And eventually they miraculously ended up in my possession. I'm going through this list and I find a series of sermons typed out by Dr. Kellogg. February 1893, I knew it had to be at the general conference session, but it's not in the GCB, not in the general conference bulletin. What's going on with this? I've never seen these in my life. This is fascinating stuff. So, where did this come from? Where did this little old lady get hold of this stuff? Well, it turns out that they were printed in this publication, The Medical Missionary. Now, notice what it says at the very top. Extra, number one, okay? The Medical Missionary was a publication that came out of Battle Creek, but it was printed by the, does it say it here? No, it doesn't say it here. Anyhow, it's printed by the Good Health Publishing Company. In other words, Kellogg. It was Kellogg's own publishing. It was, a, it was Kellogg's magazine, Kellogg's paper, okay? And it began with a fascinating um, preamble, so to speak, okay? This is what it says. This extra number is right on the front page. This extra number of the medical missionary and another extra number, and I've never seen number two. I don't even know if it was ever printed. I would love to get my little fingers on it, but it's not there. I haven't signed it yet. Anyhow. And another extra number which will succeed it comprise an abstract of the addresses pertaining to medical missionary work delivered at the late, we would say recent, Seventh-day Adventist General Conference and the institute preceding it, together with the business transacted by the Santa Chairman Association, the International Health and Temperance Association, the organization of the Seventh-day Adventist Medical Missionary and Benevolent Association. Okay, fine. So basically what that says so far is that the medical missionary magazine is publishing this stuff. Good. A little more explanation. It goes on to say, This number of the extra is made up, except when otherwise stated, of addresses delivered before the Institute and the General Conference by Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. It should be further stated that these extra numbers of the medical missionary will be sent to all subscribers to the General Conference Bulletin, which should have contained the same matter. But the funds raised for the publication of the bulletin having been exhausted, the publication of the report of meetings and other matters pertaining to medical missionary work and the benevolent work was undertaken by the medical missionary. Now, we cannot go into the whole story, but that explanation is utterly nonsensical, of course. It doesn't make a bit of sense to say that their funds were exhausted. The, medical, or the General Conference Bulletin that year was published in 26 installments. Dr. Kellogg's first, in, first sermon would have been reported in the sixth paper. You're going to tell me that they had an accountant who was so sharp, he looked at it and said, well, so we're, okay, we maybe have about another 21 of these things to produce. I think the only way we can stay on budget is cutting out everything that Dr. Kellogg says. <laughs> I don't think so. This was an editorial decision. And it's not hard to understand, because if you go back and you read the General Conference Bulletin of 1891, Dr. Kellogg had said some things that were not very complimentary of a lot of people. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so, you know, it's fascinating when you get to know these people a little bit, okay? There were ministers who did not like Kellogg. And eventually, Kellogg returned the favor, and he learned to hate the Adventist ministry. We'll see that as we go along. <clears throat> Um, someone simply decided that that's the way it was going to be. So, what did Kellogg say in 1893? Now, bear in mind, this is like two months, two and a half months after Ellen White's statement about the loud cry having begun. It's like you're going to go to a general conference session after the prophet says the loud cry has begun, and this is going to be like normal? You know? <laughs> really? You think so? You know, it's like, this is pretty exciting stuff. The loud cry has begun! 
It's got to be a little buzz in the air, okay? What did Kellogg have to say? Well, he talked about good works. Interesting. He quoted a bunch of Bible. We're going to go through this rather rapidly. I'm sorry if you have trouble with my rapid fire, but, you know, here we go. Um, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. What's that? Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What are good works? What's the Bible talking about? Those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. And let our people also learn to maintain Good works to meet urgent needs. What's an urgent need? That they may not be unfruitful. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Kellogg said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul exhorts us, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ, who, Peter tells us, left us an example that you should follow his steps. In Acts 10.38, Peter tells us that Christ went about doing good. It is evident then, and this is, I'm quoting Kellogg, it is evident then that if we are Christ's servants, if we follow Christ, we must also go about doing good. We're not to wait for the opportunities for doing good to come to us, but we must go about doing good, seeking opportunities to do good, to help the needy, to bless and comfort the sorrowing, to uplift the fallen. We must search them out, not wait for them to hunt us up and move us to action by their appeals. We are not to be narrow in our charities, for Paul says to us in Galatians, let us do good unto all men. It is true, he adds, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. But this does not excuse us from doing good to those who are not of the household of faith, for he says, all men. And certainly we cannot hide behind this apology, for we have not been good even to those belonging to the household. Who is he talking about? The orphans. The orphans. For years and years, we have been well able to furnish a home for the aged, the infirm, the homeless, for poor widows, worn-out ministers, aged pilgrims, helpless children, members of our denomination, old pioneers in the cause who gave liberally their property in the early days when the work was just beginning, and whose faith in the truths which we profess has led them to put all their earnings into the cause instead of hoarding up a competency for themselves. All these worthy and deserving ones who appeal to us on fraternal as well as on humanitarian grounds, we have neglected in a manner which has become a denominational disgrace." Well, put bluntly, Kellogg was embarrassed by his denomination. Basically, the church seemed to think that health reform, medical missionary work, and anything else associated with Dr. Kellogg was at best kind of off on tangent someplace. Maybe an optional feature that some people might be interested in. But Kellogg knew these were things that God was calling his people to do. And he was frustrated with being ignored. What could he say? What could he do? Well, he was an Adventist. Maybe quoting Ellen White would help. Bear in mind, this is 1892. Ellen White's in Australia. 
but you know, no problem. Now, I'll just mention that because I'm, I, a, a lot of what goes, is going to show up here is I'm quoting Kellogg, and he's quoting Ellen White. I put Ellen White's, in, in her, her words, in red, just to help you keep them straight. Okay, so that's, that's all that's going on with that. Okay, so he's quoting Ellen White here. He says, We have seen the widowed mother and her fatherless children working far beyond her strength in order to keep her little ones with her and prevent them suffering for food and clothing. Many a mother has thus died from overexertion. And Kellogg says, A mother who has the true instincts of self-respect will not go from door to door begging. She will suffer rather than complain. And because people do not complain, because they do not clamor for assistance, we do not stop to think that they may be suffering. We seldom inquire after them. How little has been done by us as a people for this class. Please, he says, think of that. This was said... Two years ago, <laughs> I just love this sense of immediacy. Two years ago she wrote this, and we haven't done anything yet. Well, for us it's been 120 years or something like that, whatever. This was said two years ago, how little has been done by us as a people for this class, for mothers, for widowed mothers. Have we not come far short of our duty? We are not doing as much as is done by other denominations. And Kellogg says, now I don't say this, the Lord says it. We have set ourselves up on a high pinnacle and say, we are God's special people. Our cause is the Lord's cause. And we talk about ourselves as being the peculiar people. And yet we are not doing as much Christian work. And Christian work of a very important character as other denominations are doing. Again, Ellen White, it is right that more should be expected of us than of others. The Bible teaches us the same thing. Kellogg says that we ought to be doing more than others, but we are doing less. Now, can we expect the loud cry to begin while we are so neglectful of the needy around us? We may imagine the Lord is going to work miracles for us and to do this work for himself, but he will not. We need not expect that the loud cry will begin until we do what the Lord wants us to do. Two and a half months before, Ellen White had said the loud cry had begun. Huh. What do you make of this if you're sitting in the audience? Kellogg crossed a, a line there, and the reaction was fairly swift. A voice from the audience, The loud cry has already begun! Dr. Kellogg, we ought to be able to show that we are doing what the Lord says should be done first. It has begun! then we shall see this work that the Lord tells us must be done begin right away. <laughs> That's about as charitable as I... <laughs> that was pretty classic. That was Kellogg. What was he supposed to say? It seems he was aware of the awkwardness of his position, but the Bible was clear. He came back to the question a while later. I'm skipping over a bunch of stuff here. Speaking of the more humanitarian side of Christian service, he said... Now, the question is whether Seventh-day Adventists are going to lead in this work or is it going to be left for someone else to do? The Lord has given us here a very precious work to do. It is not the whole of the third angel's message, but it is a part of it. You read in Isaiah 58 how we can make our light shine. If you draw out your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. Then shall your light rise in obscurity and your darkness be as the noonday. 
This was Kellogg's first mention, and I've skipped over a bunch of stuff. We're already up into talk number four. But this is his first mention of Isaiah 58. And he hammers this point home. Listen to him. If we want the loud cry to begin, brethren, that is the place where it is going to begin. The loud cry is going to begin with our doing the things that the Lord in this chapter, Isaiah 58, says come before the loud cry. So he says we must draw out our soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul. He says if we will do this, our light shall shine. Well, as might be imagined, someone in the congregation choked a bit on this. (laughs) Question. Don't you think the loud cry has commenced? Answer, Dr. Kellogg. I don't know. I am presenting this subject of medical mission work from my standpoint. There is everything to indicate that the Lord is anxious to have the loud cry begin to sound, but he says these things referred to in Isaiah 58 must first be done. And so far, the things that have been done in this direction have been done by other people, not by us. Well, the other people he's talking about would be the lady who gave the $30,000, the father who funded the visiting nurses program. Okay, So... Now we come to a basic question. Did Dr. Kellogg believe the spirit of prophecy or not? I mean, oh, I'd said two and a half months before the loud cry had begun, and somebody says, don't you believe it's already commenced? He says, I don't know. Kellogg was confused. Now, the testimony of everyone who knew him at that time was that he was an ardent believer in the spirit of prophecy. You can find accounts from... Know, numerous sources of how Kellogg would, I, I'm tempted to do it, but that's, that would be irrational. Um, in, the, in the cafeteria at the sanitarium, he would gather the workers and he'd climb up on top of the table and he'd stand there with a letter that he'd received from Ellen White from Australia and he'd read it with tears in his eyes and tell them, what a wonderful blessing we have that God has given this light. So when he says, I don't know, it's not that he didn't believe Ellen White. Now, years later, yes, he threw her out, out the bus. Okay. <clears throat> well, okay. Kellogg goes on. Brother Jones may be right in thinking that the time has come for the loud cry to begin, but if the loud cry has been begun by our people, it must be because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. We've done so little in that way that it seems to me that before the loud cry will make any great noise in the world, we'll have to let our light shine a great deal brighter than we ever have yet done because the works come first. The light must shine through these good works before we can be called the repairers of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. For that promise comes after all these conditions, you see. And he's right. Read Isaiah 58. He says, We had a testimony over 30 years ago saying that we as a people were to rise higher and higher in this kind of work. He'd already quoted that, but we skipped over that. But it does not appear from testimonies received at different times since that one was given that we have risen perceptibly from that time until now, a period of 30 years. Over 30 years. How is the loud cry going to be given through us when a large part of the denomination are 30 years behind time and sounding a note altogether out of tune? 
We must do the work which the Lord has told us to do and which we have left undone. We must do our relation, our, our duty in relation to health principles and benevolence in connection with other questions. We must heed the light and accept the whole truth before we can expect the Lord to sound the loud cry through us. Well, <clears throat> that's what Kellogg, and I think we have some more here, but yeah, that's what Kellogg had to say in 1893. Now we're going to back up just a little bit here and do some analysis. We, uh, we looked at this passage already, but notice the highlighted portion there. If the loud cry has been begun by our people, it must be because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. This is as close as Dr. Kellogg came to getting a handle on the question, at least, at least right at that time. The problem here is that Kellogg had a vision of what the Lord was calling God's people to do in medical missionary work. Just read Isaiah 58. It's all there. It really is. But he confused what was needed for the finishing of the loud cry with what was required for the starting of the loud cry. Do you follow that? Does that make any sense to you? That's, that's kind of an important point. I wanna, maybe I'll repeat that. Okay. Kellogg was looking at the church and he said, man, we aren't doing Isaiah 58. How can the loud cry be sounding? You know, the irony of it is that in the last year, in, in the last 12 months, he himself had been involved in starting all these other things, the orphanage, the visiting nurses program, the, the Christian help work. And so he came close. He said, if... If it's begun, it's because we have just begun to do a little in the way of letting our light shine. Now, I'll just, I'll just tell you what my premise here is. My premise right now is that Kellogg was on to something right here. That the loud cry that Ellen White comments on in 1892 owed at least a part of its genesis, its beginning, owed at least a part of it to the medical missionary work. Okay, now... That may be a totally new thought to you. You may be used to thinking, well, it has to be something in Galatians someplace, because that's what Jones was, was writing about. So, you know, if you're not sold yet, that's okay. But hear me out, because I'm going to try and sell you. <laughs> okay? <laughs> the irony is that Dr. Kellogg, who had a reputation for sometimes being a little proud and taking a lot of credit to himself, completely discounted the work that he'd been doing for the last year. And he never really seen, there's no evidence that he ever looked at that and said, you know, maybe, maybe, just maybe, we've actually gotten started on the loud cry. Well, this explanation only makes sense if medical missionary work is actually an integral part and a requirement of the loud cry. Again, it's kind of like you lift the lid on the, the hood on the car, and there's this thing in there. What happens if you pull it out? Does it make the car stop? Okay. Can the loud cry go forward without medical missionary work? If you can do it without medical missionary work, then you don't need medical missionary work. But if it takes medical missionary work, we better have some. <laughs> okay. Look at Ellen White's statement. The time of test is just upon us, for the loud cry of the third angel has already begun in the revelation of the righteousness of Christ, the sin-pardoning Redeemer. This is the beginning of the light of the angel whose glory shall fill the whole earth. Now notice this one word. What does that word imply? Demonstration. Thank you. Demonstration. You do not reveal... 
the righteousness of Christ solely in a sermon. You proclaim the righteousness of Christ. There is a difference between proclamation and demonstration. And in my mind, revelation leans closer to demonstration. Revelation is maybe the whole package. Let's put it that way. At least it's proclamation and demonstration together. Notice Ellen White didn't say the proclamation. Okay, let's go on. Notice this parallel. The glory shall fill the whole earth. This, this, is, this is the glory of the loud cry. The, the, the third angel's message, the loud cry, okay, fill the whole earth. Notice this. We shall see the medical missionary work broadening and deepening at every point of its progress until the whole earth is covered as the waters cover the sea. Hmm, fill the whole earth. Kind of a parallel thought there. Well, let's jump on the crux of the issue here. Ellen White made this interesting comment. She says, I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Really? Worst? Any grammarians? What kind of word is worst? It is a superlative. It's as far as you can go. The only thing worse than worst is worsterist. <laughs> and that's pretty bad. So, worst evil, the worst evil is placed on the churches when the medical work and the ministerial work are not united. Really? You'll notice the doctors get off scot-free. <laughs> you know, it's the church that gets stuck with the worst evil. The doctors, I guess they're doing okay. You know, they just, whatever, you know. <laughs> Really? Worst evil? You think she's really serious about this? Or is this maybe a little hyperbole, a little exaggeration going on? She just wanted to kind of make a point, you think? You know, she hardly ever uses exaggeration as a, as a literary technique. It's just not something Ellen White was given to. Okay, let's move on. I see I'm going to be in danger on the time here. Um, Statement goes on and says, Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences, and our conference workers ought to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Uh, there's another link. Oh, man, I'm going to be, I'm going to have trouble getting this in, but we're going to do this. I'm going to skip the introduction and jump right to the facts. You'll follow me on this, I trust. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. He's supporting his Messiahship. He's saying, I am the Messiah. My, I, my Father and I are one. Okay? Notice that. He was not bluffing around. He wasn't just shooting something off the top of his mouth. The next verse tells us the setting. It says, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus answered them, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. The point here is that over and over and again, when Jesus' Messiahship was challenged... His final appeal was always, look at my works. Look at my works. If I'm doing what the Father does, you got no case. If I don't do what the Father does, okay, you got a point. The works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The concept here is that the similarity of a person's works to the works of his or her Father is evidence of that relationship. Okay, And it's both a positive and a negative thing. Jesus answered, 
the Jews. He says, I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. And then a few verses later, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> right? And the desires of your father you want to do. The link between oneness with the father is the works. That's the evidence. John 14, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. What kind of works is he talking about? You know, when I read those verses, I used to think, okay, let's see, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, that's pretty impressive. Walking on water, you know, yeah, that's, that's cool. Feeding 5,000 people, that's, I, you know, those, those obvious miraculous things, the things that showed off his divinity, his miracle-working power, those must be the works he's talking about. Well, you know, does Jesus ever define the works that he's talking about? It's kind of interesting. He sort of does. It comes like this in Luke chapter 7. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for... Are you the Messiah? John, the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets, he's in prison now and he doesn't understand the situation. He says, Are you really the Messiah? When the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist says, Are you the one? And that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind he gave sight. And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preach to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. John asked, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, Go tell him what I'm doing. Go tell him my works. The evidence of Christ's divinity was seen in its adaptation to the needs of suffering Humanity. His glory was shown in his condescension to our low estate. The principle of John the Baptist's own life of self-abnegation was the principle of the Messiah's kingdom. John was stunned. It had never, ever occurred to him that the Messiah would come in humility. He knew what the Spirit of God had asked him to do, move out in the desert, dress in the, you know, camel clothes. Okay? Incidentally, the, the locusts were not grasshoppers. Side issue. <laughs> okay. But, yeah. okay. John knew what he was called to do, but that the Messiah would come and live the same way was unthinkable. I find it fascinating that to me it's just exactly the opposite. It's like, of course Jesus was patient. Yeah, people spit in his face and pull out his beard and he takes it and calmly because he's the son of God. I mean, what would you expect? Me, I'm just a human being. Of course I'm going to duke him out. You know? Wrong, <laughs> utterly wrong, completely and utterly wrong. Jesus never said, okay, everyone, please notice these six categories of good works are the specific evidence of my messiahship. But that's what he was answering. Ellen White, I cannot too strongly urge all our church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angel's message, all who turn away their feet from the Sabbath to consider the message of the 58th chapter of Isaiah. The work of beneficence, doing nice things to people. Okay, The work of beneficence in joining this chapter is the work that God requires His people to do at this time. It is a work of His own appointment. We are not left in doubt as to where the message applies in the time of its marked fulfillment. For we read, 
in Isaiah 58, They that shall be of thee shall build the old waste places, thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of paths to dwell. God's memorial, the seventh-day Sabbath, the sign of his work in creating the world has been displaced by the man of sin. God's people have a special work to do in repairing the breach that has been made in his law, and the nearer we approach the end, the more urgent this work becomes. Okay, this is fine. We understand this. All who love God will show that they bear his sign by keeping his commandments. We know that. They are the restorers of the paths to dwell in. The Lord says, If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, then shalt thou know thy light thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth. Good, good, good. We're all cool with that. But the statement continues. The next word is thus. What does the word thus mean? Therefore, because of the logical conclusion. So what's the logical conclusion of all that? Thus, genuine medical missionary work is bound up inseparably with the keeping of God's commandments, of which the Sabbath is especially mentioned, since it is a great memorial of God's creative work. Its observance is bound up with the work of restoring the moral image of God and man. This is the ministry which God's people are to carry forward at this time. This ministry, rightly performed, will bring rich blessings to the church. And notice this. This is a great statement. We cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we serve the Lord in the manner brought to view in the Scripture. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? She goes on and quotes, last sentence down at the bottom. This is the work that rests upon every soul who accepts the service of Christ. I think that's you and me. Isaiah 58. 1902, the sanitarium burned down in February. Review and Herald burned down in December. Ellen White made some interesting comments. She explicitly said that the Lord signified his displeasure by permitting the principal buildings of these institutions to be destroyed by fire. She's pointed to a number of different specific problems, and you know, there was the publishing of infidel works, and you know, these different problems. And she pointed to those. But there was an interesting statement she made, and a more general statement. She says this. Notwithstanding the plain evidence of the Lord's providence in these destructive fires, some among us have not hesitated to make light of the statement, they're laughing at the statement, that these buildings were burned because men had been swaying things in directions which the Lord could not approve. Men have been departing from right principles for the promulgation of which these institutions were established. They have failed of doing the very work that God ordained should be done to prepare a people to build the old waste places and to stand in the breach as represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. In this scripture, the work we are to do is clearly defined as being medical missionary work. This work is to be done in all places. Is not this the fast that I have chosen? Why did the buildings burn? They weren't doing Isaiah 58. Wow. And that's still a serious issue. You all understand the concept of conditional prophecy, right? Praise the Lord for conditional prophecy. Here's one I hope I never see fulfilled. The word was spoken, God will cleanse and purify his temple in his displeasure. In the visions of the night, I saw a sword of fire hung out over Battle Creek. Brethren, God is in earnest with us. I want to tell you that after, after the warnings given in these burnings, the leaders of our people go right on, just as they have done in the past, exalting themselves. God will take the bodies next. Just as surely as he lives, he will speak to them in language that they cannot fail to understand. That's conditional. I hope I never see it. But this is serious stuff. One more quick parallel. 
Isaiah 58 happens to run perfectly parallel with another famous passage that Adventists sometimes talk about. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice, tell my people, beginning words of Isaiah 58, to the angel of the church of Laodicea. Here's a message to a church. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. They take delight in approaching God, but they fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. And Laodicea thinks, I am rich and increased with goods, have become wealthy, have need of nothing, but you are neither cold nor hot and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There's the Lord's diagnosis. Here's a prescription. The fast that I have chosen, loose the bonds, undo the heavy burdens, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke, share your bread, bring, your house, bring to your house the poor who are cast out. Buy gold, white garments, ISAF. Be zealous and repent. What is the gold? Anybody remember? Spirit prophecy defines it. Faith and love, and which takes the predominance? Love. And the result. Then your light shall break forth. Healing, righteousness shall go before you. Glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Light shall dawn in the darkness. The Lord will guide you. Strengthen your bones. Ride in the high place of the earth. I will come in and dine with him. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If there's really a link between Isaiah 58 and the message of Laodicea, and there's a link between Isaiah 58 and righteousness by faith, or 1888 Minneapolis, you might think that there would be a link between righteousness by faith and Laodicea. Does that make sense? You've got to put up a triangle, you know, and you, okay? Something like this, maybe? Since the time of the Minneapolis meeting, I have seen the state of the Laodicean church as never before. Those are just little snippets. There's a ton of things that I could go into, but I'm quickly, quickly going through this. Let the instruction be given in the 58th chapter of Isaiah be studied. Wonderful would be the results if ministers and church members would be converted and adopt Christ's manner of witnessing to the power of the Lord. What is Isaiah 58? It's Christ's manner of witnessing to the power of the Lord. Be converted. That's a good thing. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the ministers and church members would be converted? And that, you know, that poses a little problem somewhere along the line, okay? Why do we have to do it his way? Oh, come on, you all know the statement. Why do we have to do it his way? Christ's method alone. We'll give true success in reaching the people. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed his sympathy for them, ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them follow me. Christ's method alone is the sign of our discipleship. It's the evidence to be given to the world of his Messiahship. It says that in John 14. Our use of Christ's method alone, uh, I'm repeating myself, Um, (laughs) Christ's method alone, Isaiah 58, is a prerequisite 
for acceptable Sabbath observance. Remember the statement, we cannot keep the Sabbath holy unless we carry out the scripture. It is also, quoting, the work that God requires his people to do at this time, well, a hundred years ago, anyhow it was. I'm guessing it hasn't changed. And one last thing. The work that the great teacher did in connection with his disciples is the example we are to follow. It is only, how many ways? It is only by an unselfish interest in those in need of help that we can give a practical demonstration of the truths of the gospel. Really? I can't do that in a sermon? No, I can't actually. It'd be fun to try, but I can't. Do you like a challenge? Do you want a challenge in life? Here's how to find a challenge. Take something that God says can't be done and then spend the rest of your life trying to do it. There's a challenge. Or did you want one where you had a chance of success? (laughs) If all you want is a challenge, God says a lot of things are impossible. And I hate to say it, but we spend a lot of time trying to do some things that God has said are impossible. The Lord will give you success in this work, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation when it is interwoven with the practical life, when it is lived and practiced. Look at this last sentence. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the, what is the, grammatically? The definite article. It's not an A. It's not an an. It's the. means there's one. Only one. True. Interpretation of the gospel. What is the demonstration that the Holy Spirit is trying to work in the church that needs to be done before the ceiling can happen, before the end can come? What is the demonstration? I submit to you that it's somehow very, very closely related to medical missionary work. And we'll pick up our thought there when we go on next time. (laughs) Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, I ask your blessing. I thank you for the time that we've had and Thank you for the patience of the saints that have put up with me being a little long. I pray that you'll go with us now and bless us in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, Visit us online at gycweb.org.